Good morning. It's wonderful. To, oh, I am, I am on today. Okay, it's a little louder than normal. I, it's well, wonderful to see all of you, so many of you returning and so many new faces as well. So welcome to the study of James and Proverbs this year. I can't believe the summer is over. I feel like I blinked and we're back. <laughs> but then when I think about the last time we were together, it seems like a long time ago. So I've missed you and I'm excited to be back. For those of you who don't know me and who are new, my name is Katie Talcott. Um, my husband and I moved to California about three years ago and found a church home here in Fisherville, and we have loved every minute of being here and being in this wonderful body, and we are excited to get to serve and learn from Pastor Brian and be part of this church, and, we're really ex- and I'm really excited again, like I said, about um, studying the book of James with you. We have three boys, just a little background about me, they're, they all had birthdays, so they're 11 and 9 and 6. And I just started teaching kindergarten this year, half-day kindergarten. So if I come in a little frazzled and I don't seem to all have it together, you know why. Because <laughs> I've just been with a bunch of five- and six-year-olds. I have 12 kids in my class, and nine of them are boys. That gives you a little idea of what my class is like. And you can pray for me if you think about me. So um, anyway, I'm excited, like I said, and eager to learn with you. And let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together in the middle of the week and renew our minds in your word, to have fellowship with other women around your word, to share our burdens, to share our concerns, to share our triumphs and our victories, and to learn more about you. I pray that you'd be honored and blessed in all that happens today, and that you would be pleased with what I, what I teach now, that you would be honored in all that occurs. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you could turn to the book of James, it's right after Hebrews, right before First and Second Peter. And while you're turning there, I know that your small group leaders covered this in your Bible study, in your small group time, but I just wanted to say to everyone at once, just a little bit of what we want the Bible study to look like and what the intention is behind it. And so every week you'll get a lesson, and this will be the first week you do it, and you'll have a passage of scripture that you read. And then you'll answer questions based on that passage of scripture. And the questions aren't trying to trick you or mess you up or they're they're really designed so that you can answer them straight from the text, that you don't have to do any additional Bible study. You don't have to look up a commentary. Occasionally we'll have you define a word from the dictionary, but it's supposed to be really from your study of the Bible. Now, if you want to go read a commentary and study more, we're not discouraging that, feel free. But don't feel like you have to, you know, have a seminary degree or do all that. It's, It's just your personal Bible study that you read it and that you study it. And we're hoping to develop through doing that five days a week, just a regular habit and discipline of time in the word. And then as just like today, you're going to come here and we're going to meet in our small groups where we'll discuss the lesson. And then we'll come in here for a time of teaching and singing with Heather. And that'll, that'll be the day. So um, we also really encourage, if at the beginning of your lessons, there's a Bible memory verse. We really encourage you guys to memorize. We know that everyone doesn't have the same ability to memorize. We do one verse a week, but if you can't do that, don't keep, let that keep you from doing Bible study. Let that just do one every two weeks. And if you memorize a shorter section, but you still memorize with us, it, it still will have immense benefit in your life. Um, I'm going to brag a little on Agnes Kropp. If you go to our church, you know Agnes, and she comes to the night group. And when she joined Bible study, she was like, I don't know even about doing the Bible study. I don't think I can do it. And she said, I for sure can't do the memorization. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay, just try. And we have a little app. Maybe your, uh, your small group leaders told you about it. It's called Scripture Typer. I think they've actually changed it to Bible Memory is the new name. And so she's like, okay, I'll try. And she memorized the summer of the entire book of James. 
So you can have, <laughs> she didn't think she could memorize anything last year, and over the summer she memorized James. So she, she just used the app, and it has a little, it gives you the first letter of every word, so you can kind of test yourself, and so she memorized it just using that technique. So even if you think you can't do all of it, try, you'll be surprised at how much you can do and how much you'll get. So um, with that, let's, I'm just going to read today, because we're, today we're going to do an overview of the book of James. We're not we're going to dive in after you do your lesson. So what you study is what we'll teach on. So since you haven't studied something yet, this is just our overview. But I wanted to read the passage that we're going to be studying this coming week. So James, we're in chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. It might surprise you to know, maybe, that James was the first book written in the New Testament. It didn't happen first chronologically, obviously the Gospels did, but they weren't written first, James was. But it was the last book to be added to the canon. It was the last one for everyone to agree that it was inspired and part of Scripture. And part of the reason for that is that... Um, Part of the reason for that is that James, some of the criticisms and attacks that you'll hear on the book of James is it has an emphasis on works, not faith alone, right? That the, James is saying that you have to have faith and works, which is also where the book of James has kind of fallen into disrepute because that is one reason why Martin Luther wasn't a huge fan of the book. So in the, during the Reformation, Martin Luther called it a, a straw epistle, I think, kind of, because you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church used this to justify their faith with works theology. And so, obviously, as, as Martin Luther was standing against that, he struggled greatly with the book a little bit, and he kind of gave it a negative reputation. In fact, one um, commentator speaking on this says, the book of James has languished in the backwater of neglect due to the opinions of two German Martins, Martin Luther and Martin Deblius. I think that's how you say that. And like I said, one reason is because they believe there's an emphasis on works, not faith. The other is they feel like it's really disjointed. And you're just kind of talking about it doesn't seem to have to many people a, a lot of a logical flow and rhythm. Some people say, you know, it doesn't seem to have a lot of theology or connection to the Old Testament with a lot of the New Testament books. So these would be some of the things you'll hear people criticize. And it's kind of at the end, right, of the New Testament, just tucked right in between these other books we know a little bit better sometimes. And people criticize it. 
And I'm excited as we study this for us to learn how everything I said is not true. <laughs> James has a wonderful emphasis on how our faith produces works, not is based on works, but true faith produces works. Also, it is highly connected to the teaching of Jesus. But we're going to go through and see how James is really um, a further exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And what was Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He was explaining the Old Testament law. Um, Sorry, I got ahead of myself there, but I'll just tell you this part now. Um, James is connected to the old, to like I said, the Sermon on the Mount, and one scholar says that the Sermon on the Mount shows us how to practically live at, sorry, the Sermon on the Mount is a reiteration and application of Jesus' teaching on the Old Testament law. So if the, if the Sermon on the Mount is all about us understanding the Old Testament law, and James is explaining how we're going to apply that. It's connected not only to the Old Testament, but very, very closely to the teaching of Jesus. And we'll see over and over again how James is connected to the teachings of Jesus um, in the Gospels. So as we go through, we're going to see that it's also that it's very, there's a very logical flow. I'll even share with you at the end an outline that we're going to be using for the book of James. There's a, there's a very clear reasoning to it, but sometimes it seems disjointed because it's more of a sermon. So if you think when you're talking to an audience and you're interacting with them, sometimes the flow of your speech and how you would talk to someone is a little different than how you would write yourself out. And I'm not saying that this was first a sermon, I don't know, but it, it reads like that. It almost reads like someone who's presenting, but there is a very logical flow. And even though we're going to be looking at this in our lesson, I want us today to look at the author and the background of the book of James, because next week we're just going to dive into the text. So James, if I, when I was little, I just thought, oh, you know, James, John, Thunds of Sunder, that's, that's James. No, it's not. James died very early. He was um, one of the first martyrs of the church, and the book of James was written all conservative scholars basically agree by the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus is the author of the book of James. And what's really interesting, and I think even encouraging about that, is during Jesus' life and ministry, James didn't believe. You know, you, you, you read the stories of when the brothers and sisters are almost embarrassed of Jesus. Like, we've got to get him to quit talking. Like, the, he, people are going to think he's crazy, right? And so they don't believe him. And we don't know exactly the point of James' conversion, but you don't have evidence of it until after Christ's death and resurrection. And so Christ dies, he raises from the dead, and we see that he appeared specifically to James. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Jesus appeared just to James, and at some point in there, James becomes a believer. And not only a believer, but he becomes the leader of the New, of the New Testament church, the beginning in Jerusalem. And again, in our circles where we believe all scripture is inspired and we probably didn't have any problems with the book of James coming into it, you might think, yeah, this is, this is self-evident. But it actually matters a lot when you're talking to other people to understand who James was and his place in the church because if you diminish who James is, you can diminish his letter. You can diminish his message. And if you understand who he was and how God was using him, you give the proper authority. Think about Paul. If you discredit Paul, you've discredited half the New Testament, right? And you don't, you don't, his letters don't carry the same weight. Same thing with James. So a little bit about James. He became a believer after Christ's death, and he became the leader, and it's shown through many different interactions that the other apostles have with him. First, we'll look at Paul. Um, in Galatians 1.9, Paul said that when he came to Jerusalem the first time after his conversion, he met with the two apostles, James and Peter. So he puts James at the level of an apostle, someone who was a disciple during Jesus' life and is a leader of the church. He only met with two, James and Peter. And then later, when Paul and Barnabas come back, they only visit with James, Peter, and John. And they're listed in that order. James is often listed first. In Acts 12, 17, 
Peter, when he's coming out of prison, says, go tell James and the brothers. He's just always given prominence as a leader. You have to give this information to him. You have to come report to him. He's listed as an apostle. But you see it really clearly in the Jerusalem Council. So in the Jerusalem Council, was one of the first major decisions that the church ever made. If you remember, the church yeah, first was basically Jewish believers, right? It happens that everyone, the Jews have all come into Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. It's 40 days after Pentecost happens, and the gospel is preached first to the Jews, right? And the Jews believe, and that's supposed to, the commission was it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth. So the early church is basically a Jewish church. And as the gospel spread to the Gentiles, remember there was a huge, huge, if you're with our study last year, huge tension, racial, like we have nothing in our, in our country to compare to the racial tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And they hated each other. And so there were a lot of the Jews who were saying either they're not part of the church, the gospel's not for them, or they have to convert to Judaism. So the Jerusalem council met to meet on that issue, is that do they have to convert to Judaism? And Peter makes an argument for why that's not true, based on his vision from the Lord. Paul makes an argument based on what the Lord said, but James makes the decision. And in the Greek it says that he, that I decided. So the final decision was, that came from the church was James. And so James hears everything and says, nope, Jews are part of the church. They don't have to convert. And so you see the, def the deference that the other leaders show James. And so again, just the point of, of emphasizing this is that we shouldn't diminish the, point, the importance of the message. And the early church didn't. If you had first thousand years of having a full Bible, you would have read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, James. And then you would have read First and Second Peter, and then you would have read First, Second, Third John and Jude, and those are the general epistles. So going into the audience, we've looked at the author. The those books were written to the universal church. They weren't specific letters to specific churches or to individuals like many of Paul's letters were. And they were also the three pillars of the church at the beginning. And our oldest copy of the New Testament that's the order that it's in. And again, the order is not inspired, but it shows how people who were closer to the time thought the flow should go and thought that the order of prominence of the authors. Again, this is not diminishing any book of the Bible one over the other, just um, showing the place that James, I guess, should have. So, um, all right, I lost my spot. So the oldest copies of the Bible have James right after Acts. He's writing, again, I said, to the universal church at this time. That's why, because you're like, well, it says he's writing to the Jews. Remember that this is the first book written, and the church was Jewish at the beginning. It changes quickly, but at the time he's writing this, it's a Jewish church. They're also dispersed. Remember, if you were with us last year, that the Assyrians had taken off, had taken um, the northern ten tribes into captivity in 722 B.C., and then Babylon had taken um, Judah and the remaining tribe in 586. And even though some of them returned under... Cyrus's decree, most of them didn't. Most of them stayed where they were dispersed. So he's writing to a, a Jewish population that's dispersed throughout the world. He's writing to the church, and they were experiencing severe persecution. I mean, you don't read very far in the book of Acts until you realize that Stephen's being murdered, right? And so the persecution has started. So the, James is writing to answer this question. In light of the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension, how are we supposed to live? So if you were with us last year, we're going to do a quick review of the past two years of Bible study. We studied redemptive history. And so you remember in the Old Testament, God created a perfect world, Adam and Eve sinned, and in the rest of the Old Testament, we were looking for the one who could reverse the curse, the serpent crusher, the one who was going to make it all right. Okay? That's a very brief summary of the Old Testament, but that's what happens. And then you come to the Gospels. 
and the Gospels, he finally comes, right? He comes, the one we've been waiting for, the one that the Old Testament's been pointing to and looking to, Christ comes, and he's rejected. And so they thought when he came, the curse is going to be reversed. The kingdom is going to come. It's going to be better. But he was rejected. He died. That pays a penalty for sin. That's part of God's plan. He rose again, getting victory over sin and death. But then he ascended. And that wasn't in everyone's expectation, right? They were expecting the kingdom. Even the disciples in Acts 1 said, is the kingdom now, right? Is this happening now? But he ascended. And so even though he has won the victory over Satan, and even though that victory is sure, we're waiting the consummation. We're not living in the new heavens and new earth yet, right? And so now there's kind of a question mark. That wasn't really in everybody's expectation. So what do we do while we wait? How do we live now? What does it mean to be a Christian? And that term's not even in the Old Testament, right? Because you're just looking for the Messiah and you're looking for the kingdom. What does that mean? That's what James is going to answer. That's what we're going to see as we go into this study over the fall. So with that, there are a couple major themes of the book that I wanted to just cover with you. As I was reading the different commentators, <clears throat> they all basically picked their, their idea of the main theme of James as their outline. So John MacArthur's outline saw everything as a test of faith, a test of speech, a test of wealth, a test of... Um, J.A. Moiter saw everything as spiritual growth and maturity. So he put, outlined the whole book. Here's how you grow. Here's how you mature. Um, Douglas Moo saw everything as spiritual wholeness, which is kind of another take on spiritual maturity. But the one that I was convinced of, the argument I most... Um, I, I thought was best supported by the text was one by William Varner. He was a Bible professor that um, I had when I was at the Master's University. He's written three commentaries on James. And he picked the theme heaven, heavenly wisdom. He thinks wisdom is the main point of the book of James. And I was convinced of this both from a very technical argument he made from the text that I will spare you, but secondly, because all the other themes fit in it. it all, he, when you think about wisdom, you have to be wise to go through any kind of trial and test of faith. And you have to be wise to have spiritual maturity and wholeness. And you have to be what I saw them not as competing themes, but actually very complementary and working together. So if you turn to James 3, 13 through 18, um, he believes, Dr. Varner argues, and like I said, I was convinced of this, that this is the, the main point of the book. And the way he argued it, if you were listening to a piece of music, or even we do this with our family, if you're trying sometimes to emphasize something, you'll make it different from the rest. So when I'm working with my kindergarten class, sometimes I write all in one color, then I put something in a different color, and then all the rest in another color, because I want them to notice the one different thing, right? And that's how the book of James works. Everything is written in a similar tense, similar, I'm not going to go through all the Greek, it's, it's a Greek language thing, but it's all very similar, and you come to James 3, and it's all different right here. And then you go on, and it's all the same. Kind of pointing to this as a, a main point or an emphasis that's different, and everything else supports it. And so this is going to be, in, from my understanding, um, the theme of James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So if, I'm not going to read this whole um, 
outline to you, but an outline that we're going to use from this is to see heavenly wisdom concerning trials. That's going to be, the, and, and everything that when I'm teaching I'm going to use is going to be heavenly wisdom and then fill in the blank. So heavenly wisdom about trials, heavenly wisdom concerning God's goodness, our response to the world, favoritism, living in faith. Everything falls under the umbrella of wisdom. Um, quoting Dr. Varner on this, he said, these characteristics convey the idea, idea, ideational message that James wants readers to understand, namely that there are two ways they can follow, the way of heavenly wisdom or the way of earthly wisdom. This thematic peak is what controls our author's approach to the individual paragraphs of his discourse. In each of them, a moral behavior is commended and the opposite behavior is condemned. The reader is called to make a choice between two ways. And even in that, the way of wisdom, heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom, you hear an echo of the Sermon of the Mount, right? Where constantly there are two ways set before you. The way of obedience, the narrow way, the wide way, right? The foolish man, the wise man. The, and so there are two ways set before us, the way of heavenly wisdom or the way of earthly wisdom. Uh, with that, my final point today is actually just uh, is a broader point. Why are we even doing Bible study? Why are we here? Why a Bible study? Um, I remember Pastor Brian has an incredible way of just getting to the heart of the matter. <laughs> and he was like, oh, Oh, and this was one of those quotes. He, he shared a quote by J.F. Packer, and I can only paraphrase it, but he said that the Holy Spirit's normal way of growing us is our spiritual habits. And I just thought, well, I could meditate on that the next year. <laughs> what are my spiritual habits if that's how the Holy Spirit grows on me? It grows me. So J.F. Packer says that the Holy Spirit's normal way of growing us is through our spiritual habits. And it reminded me, I swam competitively for 10 years, and my swim coach had a favorite quote by Aristotle. And I'm not putting Aristotle like on par with the Bible, but he said... Um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. And, and we know this to be true in life, right? Practice doesn't just make perfect. Practice makes permanent, right? And so if you, what we do over and over again, it is who you are, and it is what defines you. And so we need to have the right spiritual habits and disciplines if we want to be a spiritually mature person, if we want to be a wise person, if we want to be pure, and as I was saying, right, you're pure and gentle and open to reason, that doesn't happen if you're not always practicing to be that way. And so as we do this Bible study, I'm hoping that it's helped discipline, creating us a spiritual discipline and habit that God can mature us through. And there's all sorts of studies that are happening in the world secularly showing that our minds um, can get reprogrammed by how we think. Right? What you expose yourself to can truly rewire your mind. And there's study after study after study after study about it. So how important is it then that we have spiritual disciplines that keep our minds wired the way God want, wants them? Um, in, a, in his paper on scripture memorization, Andrew Davies says, Jesus Christ openly stated that our spiritual existence depends on the word of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, from Matthew 4.4. 4. Also, according to the Apostle Peter, one of our ongoing responsibilities is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, 2 Peter 3.18, and that we are to make every effort to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. It's also 2 Peter. We do this through sanctification. Jesus Christ says that what that happens by the word, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17.17. 17. I'm teaching my kindergartners Psalm 1, right? And it says that the, the, the blessed man, the happy man, meditates on the law day and night, 
right? It's something that we do all the time. And you can listen to a hundred sermons. You can come to church every Sunday. You can listen to every radio program. No one can read your Bible for you and no one can do your devotions for you. You have to be in the word. You have to be meditating on it day and night. Colossians 3.16 says the word is to be at home in us. It's to dwell in us richly. So my prayer, and as the leadership has met, as the small group leaders have met, as even as the the broader women's ministry, that this Bible study would be a tool and means to help us develop spiritual habits, and that that sanctification that happens in us, I would just, my husband was listening to this, um, I don't, I was trying to fall asleep, and he was listening to this little video, and it was, I guess, about planning and setting goals, and the man on the video said, what would make next year the best year? What what would be the, the, the best thing that could happen to you next year? If I were to make a goal like that for this Bible study, it would be that the whole church knew that the women in this Bible study were different because of our impact on the church. That we would be mature in such a way that they'd say, wow, like, there's a lot of wisdom coming from there. That your husbands would be, like, encouraged and blessed because we have grown in wisdom. We have grown in maturity. That your children would be like, mom's different this year. And I'm not saying none of you guys are, w- are wise or godly, but they're just that we go that much farther down the road. That the school where I teach, the places where you work, that there wouldn't be an area of our life that isn't impacted because we have been changed. And not that we're doing anything specifically outward, but just that that change would be such an overflow of our life that it would have an impact. I um, would recommend to you a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers. And I was reading through it this morning. And if you ever want to feel <clears throat> like you're a sinner, read, <laughs> read that book. <laughs> And one of it said was like, Lord, my country, my home, my family, nothing, all of them are negatively impacted by my sin. And I was like, oh, okay. And th- but then I thought, well, but we can do the opposite. All of them can be positively impacted by our spiritual growth as well. And that would be my prayer for this group. And also just that as we come and we're doing that, that there's this rich fellowship around the word that your group and your relationships grow deep because of what we're studying together, what we're sharing how we're helping each other with accountability and growth. I taught a Bible study back at Grace, and all, most of the women were international students. They had come to the church I was at because there was a seminary there, and their husbands were going to seminary. They were there for three or four years, and then went back to their home countries, often to be missionaries or plant churches. And they'd been back about a year, and I got an email from one of them saying, is there any way you'd consider leading an online Bible study group? And I was like, sure. And honestly, when any of those kind of things happen, I'm like, that's never going to happen. And then if it does happen, that's going to last about it. I mean, for everyone, we're in, they're in Spain, England, Finland, and Colombia, L.A., and here, and Canada. Are we really all going to get on Skype at the same time and make that happen? They do faithfully. For a year and a half, they're always there because they don't have this. This is so rich and abundant in our world. I mean, you, don't, you can throw a rock and hit a church in Louisville, right? I... And you can't do that there. They're alone. They're the only person who's qualified in their church to do nursery and to do Sunday school and to be the pastor's wife and to lead Bible study. So they need somebody. And so they all get together on Skype and do it. And I just thought about they're not wanting a social club. They have very limited time and they're willing to stay up till very late hours or wake up early or do whatever it takes so they can have an hour around the word with someone who's like-minded with them. And so I just think when things get hard in life, that's where real relationships or that's where real fellowship happens. And so I hope that that is something that is produced in our year together. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us, that we can be together, that we can um, 
see each other, not do it over Skype, but we can be together to support, encourage, and help each other's spiritual growth. And I pray that when this study is done, it could truly be said of us that we are women who are wise, that we are women who are pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good works, impartial and sincere, and that there would be a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace through the work that you do in our lives and your spirit does this year. We pray this and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.